I am really excited about this series that we're entitling Relationships 101 because we're going to be covering basically the, the basics of doing relationships according to the Bible. And there are two primary motivations for doing this series. And uh, the, the first basic motivation is quite simply people are interested in this. We did a survey, Baptist General Convention of Texas did a survey of Georgetown and the greater area, and we basically discovered that people in this area have an above-average interest in relationships, which I think is kind of good, very interesting and healthy. The other reason that we're doing some messages on the basics of relationships is because I'm afraid that when it comes to the basics, some people have a tendency not necessarily to know the basics, and that's pretty important. And the reason it's important is because the basic information is the most important information. It's kind of like the husband whose wife went missing. He calls the sheriff's department and he explains to the sheriff, my wife went shopping yesterday and I, have, I haven't seen her since. And so the sheriff says, well, give me some information. Her height? And he said, well, somewhere over five feet. Weight? Uh, not too fat, not too thin, somewhere in that vicinity. Eye color, dark brown, light brown. I'm not exactly sure. I don't pay attention to that sort of thing. Hair color, well, she changes it once or twice a year. Sometimes it's brunette, sometimes it's blonde, sometimes it's red or any other color of the rainbow. And I just don't remember what it was last. Well, what was she wearing last when you last saw her? And he says, well, pants. Or maybe it was a skirt. And the the sheriff says, well, how am I supposed to find your wife without any basic information? And the man says, well, when she went shopping, she took off in my 2016 pearl white 4x4 Ram Limited Edition, complete with the options of the refrigerator Ram box and uh, LED lighting, other custom options, including, and he mentioned all of these things, including a towing package with a with a gold trailer hitch, sunroof, DVD player, satellite equipment, and all the rest. And after he'd finished explaining his truck, the sheriff says, well, I have good news for you. We will get your truck back to you in short order. The point is, there are some people who kind of make it through relationships in one way or another, but we have no clue as to why they make it through these relationships. And we call these people men. Uh, but <laughs> I'm kind of... I had a clap on that one. Okay, sorry. I, you know, it's kind of true. Guys are not quite as relationally intuitive, but maybe women can use a refresher on some of these things too. Uh, but we want to make sure we have the basic information because the basic information is the most important information for us to have. And so in this series, we're going to be talking about relationships in general. We're not necessarily focusing only on marriage or only on the parent-child relationship or only on friendships because all of those things don't necessarily apply to everybody. Um, but we are just going to be talking about the basics of doing r relationships. And I know that sounds very broad, and so we're going to have to start somewhere. And, and today what we're going to do is we're going to start in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 13, verses 1 through 7. It really is a mountain peak passage. And, and I knew that, that today we we're still going to have people out, and there's tons and tons of people sick, which speaking of people to pray for, we, we've got lots of people in this church that have... They have the flu. In fact, I just went and saw Charlie Steger. He's in ICU because of the flu. These things can be very serious. And so just be in prayer for these people. But I thought, we're going to go ahead and get started today. And, and at some point in the future, I think I might be a little bit more detailed on a few verses out of 1 Corinthians 13. But today we're just kind of doing an overview and giving uh, five basic truths with regards to doing relationships. So let's go ahead and stand out of respect for God who's speaking to us through his word. 
This is 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 1 through 7. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it is not rude. It is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. May God bless the reading of this word. You may be seated. Now, uh, this morning, as I mentioned, we are essentially just going to be laying the foundation for the series. And I'm going to be talking about five foundational truths with regards to relationships. And the first is, is basically this. There is a best way, and there are several less than best ways of doing relationships. Now, that ought to be obvious to a lot of us, but I want us to tease this out. Let's, let's, hang, on, let's hang out on this thought for just a moment. Uh, the most important thing for you to know, the first thing you need to know about 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is it comes right between chapters 12 and chapter 14. And uh, the reason I say this is because commonly when we come to this passage, we don't take into consideration context. And, and, and that's not always necessarily bad but the problem is because this passage is so beautiful it just has almost a a greeting card quality to it and uh, so we want someone like Morgan Freeman or James Earl Jones to read it because it's poetic and it's lyrical and it's beautiful and the problem is we start to think about it in terms of only romance or we we tend to think about it in terms of of an abstraction and the reality is it actually has some very, very concrete value to our day-in and day-out lives with regards to every aspect of doing relationships. So here's what you need to know. First uh, Corinthians chapter 13 is essentially a digression from a larger conversation that is going on, and the larger conversation that is going on that begins at the beginning of chapter 12 and goes all the way through the end of chapter 14 is this conversation concerning spiritual gifts. And we know that in the latter half of 1 Corinthians, Paul is addressing questions that have been brought to his attention by the people in Corinth. And this is one of those questions or one of those particular issues. And so in chapter 12, verse 1, he essentially says, okay, now, brothers, I don't want you to be ignorant about spiritual gifts. And he starts talking about gifts because it's one of those issues. It's one of those concerns. And this one concern of spiritual gifts actually has three things involved in it. And these three different items are all intertwined. The first issue within spiritual gifts is this issue of variety or or, or multiplicity. In other words, everybody is gifted by God to do all kinds of these different things. People are good at different things. And there's all these different gifts, a variety of gifts. There's tongues and interpretation of tongues and helps and wisdom and administration and prophecy and teaching and all the rest. And so everybody's good at all these different things. But the problem is that this this, uh, variety, this diversity is itself kind of a problem that people have to deal with. On top of that, there's pride. There's an enormous amount of pride because people are using their gifts as an opportunity to exalt themselves over other people. And so people will be doing things like, well, I'm a good teacher and look at me, woo-woo, or I'm a great administrator. You should check out these committee minutes, read them and weep, you know, or however it works. And on top of that, there's a self-centeredness. 
There's a self-serving spirit in the church, and consequently, when the congregation comes together, there is this ongoing problem of one-upmanship. Everybody's trying to outdo everybody else in demonstration of their particular importance or superiority, and so somebody's doing a tongue, well, I'm going to be doing the tongue at the same time, and mine's going to sound better, or I'm going to have a weirder interpretation, or you like that story, well, how about this story, or you think that's a good teaching, listen to this. So you actually had people talking over other people and talking all at the same time, and so there's a sort of a benefit that comes without structure, and that's spontaneity, but the downside is everybody's essentially sort of competing with each other, and it's chaos. So what do you do when that's the particular environment or situation, especially when they're coming out of paganism and there's a lot of confusion on all of these different things, when there's diversity and there's pride and there's a self-serving spirit? How do you address that? Well, in our culture, we have a tendency to address it in a couple of different ways. Uh, One uh, approach that I've seen in different ways, especially when it comes to diversity, because we're in a multicultural world, is just to flatten out the differences. Well, we're all really the same. We can all do everything. And and the Bible would be like, we can all speak in tongues. Anybody can teach. Anybody can preach. Anybody can administrate. We're all the same. Nobody's, everybody's special, which is another way of saying nobody in particular is special. Let's just flatten the differences. Another approach, though, that's taken more commonly in our culture is let's exaggerate the differences. All we can really do is get together and dialogue about the differences and and so if we're going to have one common denominator, we're not going to have a structure that we're going to impose on anybody. Here's what we're going to do. We're just going to agree on tolerance. And we're just going to deal with the chaos because people are going to do what people are going to do. And what are you going to do about it? And we're just going to do our best to get along and just live and let live. And so what would you do? Would you flatten out the differences? Do you exaggerate the differences? Here's what God does by his spirit through the Apostle Paul. God says we're not going to lower the standard in any way, shape, or form. Actually, the Bible consistently takes the approach of raising the standard. It raises the bar, and the bar that's raised all the way to the highest level is love. And so Paul, in chapter 12, verse 31, says without any reservation, without any hint of embarrassment, he says, Here's, I'm going to show you a more excellent way. There is a best way to go through life in relationship with one another, and I'm going to reveal this to you. We need we need revelation. Just by the way, I know a lot of times people say, "Well, you know, you know, the you know the world revolves around love. The world spends on love. All we need is love." And then people start defining love in their own ways, and that's contrary to the way that it works in the Bible. You need revelation. And the Bible is very clear and shows us what love actually is and how it works. It's not just in the list. It's in the demonstration of Jesus Christ. But here's the point. There is a best way to do relationships. And there are several less than best ways to do relationships. And we need that instruction. And that brings us to essentially the second major truth that is being communicated here in the Bible. And that is that doing relationships well is the most important thing in life. Now, when I say doing relationships well, what I mean is doing it in love. And we're going to expand on this a little bit later. But for now, you need to recognize that when Paul talks about love, he is not talking about something that's syrupy or hallmarky or, or, or just sentimentality. No, it, it's love that manifests itself in very, very practical, concrete action. But doing relationships well is the most important thing in life. And Paul draws this out very plainly by contrasting love in in a certain respect with three different things. Gifts, knowledge, and sacrifice. 
He talks, first of all, about giftedness. If I can speak with the tongues of men and of angels, if I can if I have the gift of prophecy, if I have a faith that can move mountains, if I can do all of these things, if I have all this giftedness but without love, I'm a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. It's all empty. And we've got some very gifted people in this church. We really do. And some of you, you can teach, and people go, wow, and then they should go, wow, because you're a great teacher. And we have some people that have tremendous faith, and we look at these people and say there's exuberance, there's power, there's some energy there, and we just want to say this person is so amazing and all the rest. And, and Paul says, no, wait a second, you can have all the gifts in the world, but if you don't have love, it amounts to nothing. It's empty. Then he talks about knowledge. If I possess, you know, if I can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge. Now, we've got some smart people here in this church. We really, really do. Some of you, you read books, lots and lots of books, some big fat books. In fact, some of you, we've got students here that are big readers. I mentioned the library about three weeks ago, and I cannot tell you how many people like, don't you dare insinuate anything negative about our library. Well, I didn't mean to. I'm sorry. Uh, I know I'm going to be paying for this for several years, but let me just remind you, love keeps no record of wrongs, okay? Uh, But... I like to read, too. Ask my family. I get annoyed when the TV's on too much because it bothers my reading. Okay, but uh, so we're on the same page. But some of you are very smart. you got thick books, and you read them in Latin and Greek and German just for fun, even though they've been translated into English. Well, have you read it in German? No, I read it in English. But I digress. We've got some very good teachers here. In fact, coming Wednesday nights, we're going to have a couple of things going on. This Wednesday night, after our big you know, fellowship meal together over in the fellowship hall, We've got a couple of teaching options. Uh, one, Brad's going to be teaching on Christology. It's going to be great. Brad is actually very, very smart, intelligent, theologically astute. You're going to love this. We've got another option with regards to uh, Wednesday nights, and it's basically near-death experiences. And I wish I had the whole thing in front of me, but he's going to be looking at scriptures and about 3,500 different near-death experiences and what does this teach us about the soul and the spirit and what happens between now and the final glorification of the body and does it exist and what can we learn from science. And you're going to love it. Dr. Walter Bradley, he actually has a section of his own dedicated to him in a Zondervan handbook of apologetics. He's part of our congregation. John Murphy, one of our members here who teaches from time to time, is going to be teaching about the resurrection coming up uh, as we get closer to April, get, get closer to Easter. He's the president of the Reasons to Believe Institute in the greater Austin area. I mean, we've got some heavy hitters, and all of our Sunday school teachers are great. We've got great teachers. We've got people with lots and lots of knowledge here. It's fantastic. But, Paul says, if you have all this knowledge, it's not any good, especially if you use it to look down on other people. You know, oh, so you haven't read Martin Luther or John Calvin or Athanasius? What a shame, you know. Come on. Is your not, I don't know how to put this. Do you wear your knowledge like a glow or like a gun? And what I mean is, is your heart radiating? Because your heart is so saturated in and penetrated by sacred knowledge, or are you wearing it on the surface like a gun on the hip? You know, Shoot first, ask for theological clarification later. Paul says, if you have all the knowledge in the world but you don't have love, it, it's nothing. You're nothing. And then he moves on and talks about sacrifice. If I give all I possess to the poor. Well, he's talking about divulging himself of all of his 
possessions and helping the needy and the disenfranchised. And you say, well, isn't that an action of love? Yes, it is. But what Paul is making a point about is this. You can be really, really involved in social concerns and be very interested in social justice and actually personally sacrifice for the benefit of the needy and clothing the naked and all of the rest. But if relationally you're still a jerk, it doesn't matter. And that's a possibility. We have a tendency to look at people who do all these good things and we say, well, that just is a fantastic person. Well, not necessarily. When the cameras aren't taking pictures and when you're not being celebrated, who are you really? Now, we love people who are involved in the lives of the needy and are very interested in the socially disenfranchised and they're very interested in social justice. And I love that and you love that. God knows that we all love that. But you know where I'm going with that. Without love, it, it amounts to nothing. Even the greatest sacrifice of all, not just giving up some of your possessions, but even your very life, not just for the poor, but for Jesus Christ and martyrdom, martyrdom surrendering your body to the flames, even that counts for nothing. God is not impressed if there's no love. I mentioned this yesterday at uh, the funeral service for Jean Young, and, uh, and the reason I mention this is because you lived a life of love. Your life is full and meaningful if there's love, but if there's no love, it's empty. And the, the biblical math that comes out of this particular passage is 7 minus 1 equals 0. If I can speak with the tongues of men, if I speak with the tongues of angels, if I have the gift of prophecy, if I can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have a faith that can move mountains, if I give all I possess to the poor, if I surrender my body to the flames, if I have all these things but I don't have love, the most important thing, it's 7 minus 1 equals a big fat 0. It's nothing. And I think people have this tendency to, to, to get off into their sacrifice or their knowledge or their giftedness because we all have a tendency to run with what feels comfortable to us or where our particular lane is. And we have this tendency to kind of forget that without love it doesn't amount to anything. We start imagining that God is up there and he's taking notes and he's going, wow, that dude is awesome. Or that, that woman is a super freak for Jesus and he's just making all these notes and he's making a list and checking it twice. And we've got God confused with Santa Claus somewhere along the way. And God the whole time is saying, wait a second, without love I'm just writing down zeros. And like, God, are you for real? Look at this guy. He's a great teacher. Look at this woman. She's a prayer warrior. Look at this guy. He's got such gifts. He's so charismatic. And God is saying zero, 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 zero. It's like when children maybe start playing sports. You, you, you shoot and it hits the backboard and, and the son says, did you see that? And the doc, dad's like, yeah. It was like nothing. Well, you hit the backboard. I don't care. It was nothing. Or hit you in the glove. Like, did you see that? Well, you didn't catch it. It's just nothing. There is no close. You either have the love or, the, or you don't. It's either a big fat zero or it amounts to something. And if you don't have love, it's nothing. In some cases, it's worse than nothing. Because there's a deception in addition to emptiness and meaninglessness. And a spiritual pride. Seven minus one equals zero. It doesn't count without love. And what is love? And then Paul tells us. Now, maybe at some other point we're going to come back and go over this list with a little bit more detail. But we're going to shoot through this. And Paul just mentions 15 characteristics. Eight of them are negative. Seven of them are positive. And the first two are positive, And they're kind of two sides of the same coin. He says love is, love is patient. That is, love tolerates frustration. Love copes when things don't go your way. Love is kind. That's love. Kindness is love with its work clothes on. Love does not envy. Now, I only envy people who have what it is that I think I have or can do things that I think I should be able to do. So I never envy anybody when I play golf with them. 
Because I don't believe that I deserve to be able to play well. I don't practice. I only play like a couple of times a year. So when I go out with Charles Lance and his score is 50 points lower than mine, I don't envy him. I just burn my card and move on with my life. But I don't envy him. But when I go to the gym and there are these guys that are twice as strong and twice as lean and twice as fast and twice as much endurance, that kind of bothers me a little bit, especially when they only work out once or twice a week. And these people are called college students, home for the holidays. You know, but I'm in my late 40s. They're in the early 20s. It's not fair, but that's okay. I'm not bitter. Really. Uh, and some of you moms, maybe you're kind of envious of the, of the other mom who has the kids who are always so well-behaved at church. But that's only because you've not learned about Benadryl 30 minutes before showing up. Okay? Or you don't have that little child-sized taser that you can get at Walmart or something. But, but we envy what it is we think others ought to have. But love doesn't do that. Love doesn't boast, it's not proud, it's not rude. You know what rudeness is? That's just inconsideration. You're not thinking about the other person. If you, if you talk too much in a conversation, that's rude. You talk too little, that can be rude. There's all kinds of ways we could be inconsiderate. Love does not seek its own. It's not self-serving. Maybe that has something to do with hospitality. Love is not easily angered. Are people always on eggshells around you? I should even ask you this because you wouldn't know. If you're easily angered, if you're irritable... You don't know that you're irritable because everybody's always on eggshells around you. And, and then it comes to your attention that maybe you're not so approachable. And people like approachable people. And say, well, I'm approachable. You can come to me anytime. Why are you so scared? Well, it's because you're irritable. Right? What? What? I'm just breathing. No, you're sinning. Not, what? Fine. You know, irritable. Irritable. Anytime you get challenged, well, all of a sudden, you know, they're, well, they're toxic or whatever. It's like, well, you know, if you're in the middle of a relationship problem with everybody, you're kind of a common denominator. You might be kind of irritable. Love isn't that way. It's not easily angered. It doesn't keep a record of wrongs. If you're keeping a record of wrongs, that's not like, being, that's not like Jesus. That's satanic. Love does not delight in evil but rejoices in the truth. You can tell a lot about a person's heart. You can tell a lot about your own with regards to where you rejoice. And then Paul goes on and talks about things that love always does. In the, fir- in the first and the fourth... Two of them talk about love in the present, and then the second and the third really have to do with love's relationship to the future. They put it to you like this. Love always protects, Paul says, and always perseveres. Love puts itself in harm's way for somebody else. It takes a bullet, and it perseveres. That means there's no quit in love. The way the King James Version puts it is love bears all things and endures all things. There's no quit in love, there's a stick to there's a courage, there's a sacrifice. And then love always trusts and love always hopes. And this is kind of a hard one to get your mind around because it doesn't mean that love is gullible, but what it does mean is this. It means, it means that you're, you're willing to trust a whole lot more than you're willing to suspect and accuse. A, a loving person makes a choice in some respect or another that I'm going, I'm going to suffer harm. I would prefer to suffer harm to myself if I'm putting myself at risk because of my kindness or because of my even temper. I'd rather have that happen, put myself at risk, than to do wrong to a brother because of an unnecessary suspicion. Love just... Trust, the way the King James Version puts it, is love believes all things. Does that sound like a willing naivete? Well, maybe. But I think the reason sometimes we're so suspicious 
is because we don't want to get hurt. And that's why we keep our distance and we don't trust. But the reason we don't trust and the reason we don't keep our distance and the reason we don't open up our hearts to somebody else isn't because we're loving the other person. It's all about you. And that's the opposite of what love is. Is your distrust rooted in some sort of fear? Perfect love casts out fear. Love always trusts. Love always hopes. Love believes the best in the other person. Hopes for the best. Hopes that the Lord is in control. Hopes hopes that God is restoring a relationship or, or bringing in the right direction. Is that dangerous to you to always trust and always hope? Will you be disappointed on occasion? Yes, but that's what open heartedness toward people does when you love. In the end, it just it just it doesn't quit. Love never ends. That's verse eight. Love never fails. And when you think about it, most of us in this room are going to say, "Well, that just sounds like the most excellent way to do life with people. That just sounds like the best way to be in relationships with people, with my husband." or my wife, or my children, or my neighbors, or fellow church members. That just sounds like the most excellent way. I don't think I'm going to find anybody here that disagrees that loves the best way. The problem is, while we like love, and I would even say we love love, we don't necessarily do it. And that brings us to the next obvious relational truth. And this is foundational. Doing relationships well does not come naturally. Personal, effortful, intentional transformation and growth into people of love. It's just part of it. It requires effort. If love just came natural, everybody would just love, and that would be it because we all love love. But it doesn't come naturally. We like the idea of it. It's just that we fall short in terms of the execution. Uh, Around this time of the year, people are making these New Year's resolutions, or actually by, by this time they're breaking them. Uh, and one of the popular resolutions is something along the lines of fitness. I'm going to eat less, exercise more, I'm going to lose 10 pounds, I'm going to work out every day, I'm going to walk three times a week, all these kinds of fitness-related things. A couple of weeks ago, I was reading this article about fitness apparel, and they made the point that the majority of people who buy fitness apparel don't actually use fitness apparel for anything that has anything remotely to do with fitness. So if you've ever wondered, hey, is that guy who's buying those shoes going to run in those? The answer is most likely No. From 2009 to 2014, I thought this was really interesting, women's purchase of yoga apparel increased at a rate 10 times greater than actual participation in yoga classes. So here, so here I know, it kind of struck me as funny. So here's, here's what that means, the bottom line, on the whole. In this following week, for each woman who is wearing yoga pants and actually doing yoga poses like the downward facing dog and the seated forward lean. You've got 10 women wearing yoga pants who are just doing the routine poses of the sleeping dog and the seated forward remote. We love the idea and we love, we love the, we love the look of fitness. It's just the follow through, the execution we have a problem with, right? Same thing's true of love. Everybody loves love. It's just we don't necessarily do it. Well, why not? Because personal, intentional, effortful growth into people who are loving is just a part of it. It takes a little work. It doesn't come naturally. Well, why not? Well, because 
When Paul's talking about love, if you're thinking about the love that Paul's talking about, that means loving myself less and loving other people more. And that's just not natural. The good life in the Bible is where I've moved to a point where my life is not revolving around me. It's revolving around other people. This is why the, the big question that everybody has to answer is this. Is your aim in relationships to give love to others or is your big aim in relationship to take love from others? That's what we have to move past. And let me tell you something about Ernest. Ernest loves Ernest. I actually always have. My parents didn't have to train me to love me. No, I, I came out of the womb pretty much putting myself before my parents. You know, when I was hungry, I didn't care if mom and dad were sleeping. No, it's about me. And if you say things and do things and think things and express things that make me happy, it's going to make me really easy to love you. But, but it, it's... If you challenge me, you frustrate me, inconvenience me, it's not going to be so easy to love you because I love me. In fact, if you inconvenience me too much, I just might even hate you. So deep is my love for Ernest. Now, most of you in this room, you say, well, that's probably true of me too. Yeah, it is. It's natural to love yourself. And in the, I know our culture kind of talks about it in these weird ways, but the Bible talks about how in end times, right before Jesus comes, when the world is, is a disaster and everything's falling apart, people will be lovers of themselves. It's not a good thing. In fact, your love for you may be so strong that there may be some people in your life that you ought to love and you know you ought to love, but you kind of hate them. Some of you, you, you hate a brother or sister. You hate a spouse. You Hate your children. You hate your neighbors. You may hate somebody else in this church. And you say, well, Ernest, that's just preacher talk. That's just too strong. Really? If love is primarily known in, in action, in what it does, well, then hate is essentially known in action, but it's essentially the opposite, right? It would go something like this. If we were making a list, hate is impatient. You know, when you're impatient, that's, I guess that's hateful. Hate is impatient. Hate is unkind. Hate is filled with envy and boasting. Hate is proud. Hate is rude. Hate always insists on doing things my own way. You say, I'm just, not a, I'm just a control freak. Well, that's a nice way to put it, hater. Hate always insists on doing things my own way. Hate gets upset at every little offense. I'm just a little touchy today. No, you're a hater. And hate keeps a detailed, ongoing record of wrongs. I just have a hard time letting go, hater. Hate does not delight to see good things come to others, but rejoices when people screw up and get what's coming to them. Hate complains about anything, is cynical about everything, has hope for no one, and puts up with nothing. And I actually know people who take pride in some of these things. Love doesn't just happen and come naturally. It requires some effort. And that brings us to the, to the final observation with regards to doing relationships well, and that is we need an instructor who will not only instruct, we need an instructor who will take us by the hand. 
And the reason we need this is because not even the Apostle Paul, no one ever has or no one currently is living up to love the way that Paul spells it out for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. There actually is one, and his name is Jesus Christ. And strangely enough, Jesus Christ actually wants to be in relationship with you and to grow in relationship with you or you to grow in relationship with him. And the reason for this is real simple. It's not because you're so wonderful, but because he's a very loving Savior. Jesus doesn't tell us to do anything. God never tells us to do anything that he doesn't do. He doesn't do. He, he's not in some way a, a cosmic hypocrite. You say, well, why would God want to have anything to do with me? Because he is in relationships not to get love from you. He is in relationship or wants to be in relationship to give love to you because he's love. And you need this. If Developmental psychology has shown us anything. It's shown us that if we're going to relate to one another appropriately, that comes from having important, healthy relationships in our lives. Children who grow up in healthy families tend to be healthy relationally. People who grow up in unhealthy families tend to be unhealthy relationally. It just follows. You say, well, I want to be relationally whole. I want to do relationships well. It's the most important thing in life. Well, okay, well, then be in relationship with the God who is love. In fact, you can just put Jesus' name right in here in this list. Jesus is patient. Jesus is kind. Jesus does not envy. Jesus does not boast. He's not proud. He is not rude. He's not self-seeking. He's not easily angered. Jesus keeps no record of wrongs. Jesus does not delight in evil but rejoices in the truth. Jesus always protects. He always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Jesus never fails. You want to be the person in relationships that you need to be. Well, you know, you need to be in relationship with Jesus and growing in relationship with Jesus. And that's why as a church we're really big on, on two things in particular that kind of intersect in a lot of ways. We're big on doing relationships together with Jesus in the middle of it. This is why we emphasize small groups on Sunday morning or small groups in homes we're coming on Wednesday night for a fellowship meal just to be in fellowship with one another. This is why we've made kind of a big deal promoting all this foundations material. We've got it for kids and for youth and for adults where you're reading the Bible and in conversation with other people, healthfully relating with one another, with Jesus in the center of it, with the Scripture pointing to Jesus because the whole of the Scripture points in particular to Jesus. You want to be more and more healthy in relationships, it's not going to be memorizing a top ten list or watching more YouTube videos or getting the next latest, greatest self-help book out of the bookstore. Ultimately, what you need is not just instruction. You need an instructor who is perfectly loving, who is taking you by the hand. That's Jesus Christ. That's why we do what we do. We don't always spell it out in those terms, but I'm spelling it out to you now. You want to relate healthfully? Have a relationship with God who is love through the Savior who is love, perfect love, taking your hand even though you don't deserve it. And some of you here say, no, my life is kind of a mess relationally. Okay, then let's start at the beginning. Let's get real basic. You need a personal relationship with Jesus. This isn't just theology out here somewhere over here or checking off the boxes, filling in the blanks and doing my religious thing. You want to be relationally healthy. You need a relationship with Jesus Christ. He offers it to you. How does that happen? 
You confess your sin. I know I've sinned. Or let's just put it in the terms of love. I know I have not loved perfectly. In fact, I've actually even hated. I've been all of those things that I shouldn't have been. I've fallen short. Jesus says, okay, I came. I paid the price for you. I've got you covered. I've traded my life for yours in the ultimate act of love. You say I'm a sinner, but I know that I have a Savior. He died on the cross for my sins, rose again from the dead. You trust in that, and you enter into that relationship and say, Yeah, Jesus, I want a personal relationship with you, but I know I can't make it happen, but I know that you did, and I trust in what you did to be in a relationship with you. It's really not that complicated. Admit your sin and trust. If you want to do that today, I'm going to give you an opportunity. Let's just go ahead and bow for a moment of prayer. Every head bowed, every eye closed, nobody looking around. If you're here today and you'd say, you know, I I do want to improve in my relationships and I know that I need a relationship with Jesus Christ that is personal, not distant, not just a religious expression, but something that is real. I want to lead you in a prayer right where you are. Just simply say this to God. God, I know I've sinned. I know I have fallen short. I know I have not loved as I should. But Lord, I know that you are the ultimate lover of my soul. That that Jesus Christ came, died on a cross, and rose again on my behalf. So Lord, I admit that I have fallen short. I admit that you paid the price for me. That you died for me to cover all of my sins and transgressions. And so Lord, I just trust in you as my Savior and Lord. And now by faith, I just simply take you by the hand. Thank you for saving me. I want to do right. I want to be a person of love, not just to earn your favor. That's not how it works. I want to be a person of love because of the favor and the love that you have already fully given to me. Thank you, Jesus, for being my Savior and my Lord, my leader, the one who's taken me by the hand. In Jesus' name, amen.